0: Available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network, we are the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online.
1: And here he goes, Miles. Jack. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner
0: gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown! SC. We are the podcast of champions. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 247 Sports Network.
1: And this is Ryan Abraham with USCFootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And we are the podcast of champions talking Pac-12 football now coming at you each and every week. We're we're on a pretty good roll, Dave. We're gonna we're gonna keep this going during the offseason. Weekly podcast I, of champions.
0: I feel like every time you say something like that you <laughs> like massively jinx it. And the <laughs> next week we're just nowhere to be found. We maybe record on a Friday and then it's three weeks before we record another one. So again, we're taking it one week at a time.
1: Yeah. I kinda have to make declarations. So this is how my brain works somehow. Like I'm a sweet tooth addict. I've been I'm a little too heavy right now for my taste. And I'll eat like a bowl of M and M's for lunch sometimes. You know, that kind of stuff. I'll just I eat like a twelve year old boy. So I have to declare I can't eat sweets. And once I make that in my head, that declaration, then I I haven't eaten sweets for like two weeks. But if I'm like, I'll just have a few, then I have no control. So if I declare that we're going to do a show every week, that sets in my mind, okay, we got to do a show every week. So that's just kind of how my brain works. You're
0: a you're a Levar Ball speak it into (laughs) existence type.
1: Yes. If I understand saying- that.
0: <laughs> I um I've long since um uh, surrendered to my compulsions. I I can't speak anything to into an existence <laughs> at all, ever, at any given
1: moment. I'm trying a new one. This is we're really off the we're we're like off the rails. We just started. Um, was at a Super Bowl party yesterday, and my buddy who's in really good shape, he does a hundred push ups a day for a year. So that was the challenge, like 100 push a day for a year. And I guess last year he missed it by one day he got like too drunk or something. And I was like, well, maybe I could do like 30 a day for like a couple <laughs> weeks and see how that goes. So I've started doing it. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. So we'll see.
0: Hey, that's something. <laughs> challenge yourself. Not bad. I like it.
1: Yeah, we'll do a little thing. Well, anyway, so we are – you wouldn't know this, but we actually talk about Pac-12 football if this is your first time. On the Podcast of Champions, if you would like to check out our website, it's pack 12 podcastcom You can find all our old episodes there. You can tweet us at pack 12 podcast uh, Our email is pack 12 podcast at gmail.com. That's through our friends at Google. And voicemail is the number 641-715-3900 extension 734 734- 972. Please leave us a voicemail. We got a couple emails this week, which we're going to get to later, Dave, because we got some some exciting stuff coming up. We're we're following through on promises.
0: I know. For the first time ever, it feels like. (laughs) Uh, So last week, if you tuned in, um, we began a series that was loaned out to us by our uh, friend Hithliday Almond, one of our longtime listeners, um, who wanted us to basically break down kind of the infrastructure of each Pac-12 school, um, what they kind of bring to the table in terms of finances, in terms of institutional buy-in, all of that good stuff, and last week, uh, since they're the two programs we know best, um, we talked USC and UCLA, and this week, we're going to talk the Arizona schools.
1: Yeah, we had uh, our buddy Chris Cartman uh, from Sun Devil Source, he does an amazing job over there uh, covering the Sun Devils, and Jason Sheard, uh really on top of everything, Arizona. Now he talks a lot of basketball. Both these guys talk a lot of basketball. So we can't let him talk any hoops, Dave, but we, we, we got to <laughs> keep them to football, but Jason Shear, uh, from Wildcat Authority. So, uh, we'll have the, the Arizona schools covered. I think we actually have a couple of tweets. People tweeted in a couple of questions about the Arizona schools. So it'll be all in on the desert schools today. For sure. Awesome. Well, uh, I think we're going to get to our first interview. Dave, does that sound good to you?
0: Yeah, let's jump in. So, are we? Uh, we're starting with uh, Chris Cartman from Sun Devil Source.
1: Okay, so we do have on the line our buddy, our pal Chris Cartman. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Cartman, K A R P M A N. He is the publisher of SunDevilSource.com, part of the twenty four seven Sports Network. He's a Heisman voter. It's the largest ASU sports community out there. He does a great job covering the arizona state sun devils and we appreciate him taking out some time as he mentioned when we got him on the call two days before signing day so we're asking a lot from a publisher of a site to come on do this our our little show two days before signing day but thanks chris for coming on and welcome to the show
2: hey my pleasure always going to make time for you uh yeah there's a lot going on but uh it's, it's also a good time to have a conversation about football
0: yeah especially with uh coaching change at asu kind of uh this is good for every Pac-12 school, but also, you know, kind of reset um, the idea of what the ASU job is and the structural factors there. So, um, just to recap for everybody out there, um, this is a little th- series from our, uh, as I said up top, from Day Almond, one of our uh, one of our listeners, um, examining the structural factors of the Pac-12 programs. And he wrote to us saying uh, the. Following is my list of questions, which I think can be fairly asked of every school to measure their baseline strengths and weaknesses. And again, I'm trying to avoid answers or to rely on a snapshot of current coaches and players. Um, so let's just kind of jump right in to start out with um, his first section is uh, touching on resources. Um, would you say that uh, ASU has the money to kind of meet its program goals?
2: Well... Uh, yes and no i would say that asu has done a pretty good job of staying connected to the rest of the pac-12 in that regard in recent years and that's primarily because of the uh, stadium district which has enabled the uh the overhaul of sun devil stadium the construction of new football facilities uh, and everything associated with that plus of course the media rights distribution in the pac-12 the the reason that I would say no is because the Pac-12 still still behind in, in that area, especially as it relates to the SEC. And I see uh, some potentially systemic problems uh, coming into the forefront as a result of that. You look at uh, this year, the, the coaching changes in the Pac-12, Oregon State, ASU, Arizona, all are paying their assistant coaches. I mean, their head coaches, uh, two million dollars or less to start out, um, and, and in some cases, th- that rises pretty significantly to over three million, three and a half million dollars over the term of the deal. But compare that to what's taking place in other parts of the country, where you actually now have some of the top coordinators making two million dollars a year and getting uh, four-year deals. Whereas uh, like the Arizona board of regents only allows you to have a two year contract for your coordinators and one year contracts for the rest of your assistant coaches. So I see it, I see a growing disparity uh, between the haves and the have nots at the major conference level, uh, particularly the sec compared to the PAC 12 that are going to be problematic and probably additionally. So uh, in, in years to come and I don't know how that gets resolved. Um, uh, the, that are associated with that. But ASU uh, particularly is going to see a, uh, a good jump in the coming years to its uh, athletics revenue. As a result of the stadium district, once it matures in the next six to eight years, that will probably give it a boost of 20 to 30% in its overall operating budget. And not, I don't know that they're going to allocate all that money uh, the way that I would allocate it, which would be primarily uh, to football, but, uh, because I think football is the grass, you know, the water that, 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 um, that keeps all your grass green in the rest of your athletic department, right? So, uh, as opposed to spending money on, uh, you know, hockey and, and, and new sports and sports that are, uh, that lose money, uh, expansion of athletic department officials and salaries and things that I don't think actually give you a good return on your investment. Um, so, uh, I think ASU is, is, is pretty well positioned and, and hanging in there as a borderline top 30 or maybe even top 25 revenue, uh, program nationally. But I, I see some things that are good about that and some things that aren't good about that.
1: There was a, it was a hundred million dollar, uh, they passed the hundred million dollar level, right? For the first time Arizona state did. Uh, so, yeah.
2: So Right. So, so, so ASU basically had a stadium project, including the 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 football facility, that's going to end up being 130 odd million dollars. And then, just in the last couple weeks, they approved a uh, a project that's going to essentially um, reconfigure Wells Fargo Arena, the basketball arena, and then build another 5,000 seat arena that's going to be tethered to Wells Fargo. And that whole project is going to be also a nine figure kind of a, I forgot the number off the top of my head, but also over a hundred million dollars. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of capital project improvements that, um, that will get ASU uh, as good a facility as probably as anybody in the league other than like Oregon, right? Cause Oregon's got Ferrari leather sofas and you know, all this other stuff <laughs> that is like almost unnecessary, but uh, I, I, you know, from what I've seen going to all the schools in in, in, in the country, I mean, in the, in the Pac-12, uh, I think ASU will be, um, you know, as good as as good as almost all of them uh, once it gets these last uh, couple major projects completed in the next four or five years.
0: I guess that's maybe a good follow-up question then, because we're asking in context of program goals. What are those? Like, what are the realistic program goals? For ASU football? Are we talking
2: about – yeah. So this is so interesting because Ray Anderson, when he fired Todd Graham, he basically said, really, really, really like, straightforward, um, our goal is to be a top 15 program consistently and to be in the top three of the Pac-12 consistently. And I was like, whoa. Like, I was, like, you know, uh, surprised that he would say – something like that because I don't I don't think that's really all that realistic Uh, you don't really have anybody that's even accomplished that Um, certainly not anybody other than USC or maybe Oregon when it was at uh, its pinnacle under Chip Kelly and immediately thereafter so um, but but I think what they really want to be able to accomplish is they want to do better in recruiting and especially in the, the, the proximate recruiting hotbed, which is really Southern California. You look at, I think we talked about this when I've been on the podcast previously, but um, ASU's two Rose Bowl teams, uh, both of them were just loaded with talent from California. And Ray Anderson said, we need to do better in California. This staff has already set out, uh, plotted a course to uh, to try to Uh, endear themselves to high school coaches in Southern California. They made this huge flurry of activity by sending six, seven coaches to some of these top schools in Southern California that everybody knows, uh, like Sarah and Oaks Christian. Um, So that, that's their goal. You know, I I think it's going to be hard. I don't know that that's achievable. I think they need to do a much better job of keeping the very best players in Arizona And, uh, and ultimately the most realistic thing that they could probably hope for would be to be more of a, a eight win, nine win type of a football team on a more consistent basis, as opposed to having these dips where they'll go for a couple, two, three years where they're uh, a borderline bowl type of a team, you know, six wins, give or take. And then they'll have these one or two year spikes where they'll win nine games, 10 games, and then they'll drop back down. I think. I think realistically, the goal is to is to elevate their average win total by about a win to a win and a half a season.
1: One uh, last point on this first uh, the, this first point about resources. At least for me, I don't know if Dave, if you have anything else. But um, the way this is structured, obviously, it's a different um, structure going into it with Herm Edwards, like the more of the NFL, you know, general manager kind of mentality and all of that. Is it set up to kind of utilize resources more efficiently? Do you think just the, at least the plan are kind of going this way, which is, you know, different than what we've seen in college football most of the way. Is it supposed to kind of utilize the resources you have in a more efficient way?
2: Yes, that's a, that's a big part of it. And essentially what ASU is doing, they're they're not reinventing the wheel. The idea that this is like going to be some new thing, this new leadership model and, uh, nobody's doing it like this. Uh, that's you know incorrect and and I don't think ASU did itself any favors with the way it put out that first uh, press release that top was like you know like something you'd see from like office space or whatever, right. I, I think what they really want to do is they want to try to make portable what they've done with student athlete development and academics. Uh, in terms of the systems and technology and kind of being on the the cutting edge of a lot of those things, they want to try to port those things over to football. So Gene Boyd, he he was a football player at ASU in the early to mid-90s, originally from Southern California. He was in charge of uh, shaping, overhauling ASU's uh, student-athlete academic program And uh, over a long period of time, ASU went from being really unsuccessful in in those areas to being uh, actually quite solid. Uh, ASU's been a second to Stanford pretty consistently in some of the key metrics that you would look at, like uh, overall team GPA. They hit 3.0 as a team uh, last spring. Um, The graduation rates, APR numbers, all those things are really robust for ASU right now. and. So what, what Ray Anderson, in, in, in speaking with Gene Boyd about a lot of these things, they decided they, wanted, they want to try to take a lot of these systems uh, over to football and see if they can have some success uh, in that regard. And so, so Boyd has now become a really central figure with ASU football. Unofficially, he's going to be like the, the general manager of ASU football, and officially his title is uh, Executive uh, um, Senior Associate Athletic Director. So he's kind of like a right-hand man. He, would he, in some ways, of course, he's underneath. You know, and then in other ways, he's like on an equal line. So you would have Ray Anderson. Underneath Ray Anderson, you would have probably on an organizational chart, uh, Herm Edwards. You would have, uh, ASU's, um, uh, senior associate athletic director for football, Tim Cassidy, who's really in charge of the operations, the day to day operations of ASU football. And then you would have Gene Boyd, uh, and then a lot of the things underneath them that you would find in every, in every college football program, uh, like who's in charge of your player personnel, uh, who's in charge of your recruiting, who's in charge of Your creative, you know, your, which, which has become a really big thing in college football, which is primarily, uh, your, your, your graphic artistry, um, and your, your video production, the things that, uh, really resonate with kids. Um, I think, and then you have your, your, um, your player development side of things, which is like your liaison to your players for all the things that they, that they do and go through and need on a day to day basis. Those are like the four areas. And uh, and then, of course, your on-field staff, your GAs, your quality control, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, the the latter that I'm speaking of, they fall directly under Herm Edwards, of course. But Gene Boyd was involved in the hiring process for those people as uh, somebody who was uh, in the interviews and all that stuff. And then you have some areas that are going to be falling directly under Gene Boyd and not as much under Herm Edwards, like who's in charge of your creative department. Um, and then the recruiting stuff is, and player personnel stuff would be in concert between Gene Boyd and, and Herm Edwards. And then of course you have underneath all those people, all of your, your next level of assistance, and then you would have your student assistance even below that. So that's sort of like the organizational chart, if you will, of what ASU football is going to look like. I don't think it's that different. have at. The better programs in the country, uh, and then and then getting that staffed up and resource level that you want it to be, and having that be uh, executed uh, as efficiently as you would like it to be, uh, that's going to be a process that's probably going to take some time. You know, probably years, not 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 weeks and months. Um, and that's what I think. That's you get the huge differentiations of of. Success. If you if you go to Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State, it's like a well-oiled machine in these areas with personnel, recruiting, creative player development, and then all of your on-campus camps and events. And all that stuff is just from one year to the next. They know exactly what their calendar looks like. What they did on this day, how did they make it better the next year on that exact same day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. That's just kind of an, an outline of what ASU or any other program would be trying to, to uh, compete with. And those programs are spending a lot more money. It's a lot of hard capital that's going into those areas versus what an ASU is able to do. That's where I think you have more of a difference between the haves and have nots. How much money everybody has the same 10 coaches. Okay. Everybody has the same number of GAs. Everybody has the same number of quality control people. How many analysts do you have? Uh, How many people do you have that are evaluating recruits and how many people in the uh, acquisition uh, uh, area of recruits? And how many people do you have who are on your creative side, which is designing all the material that you that you use to uh, procure those those recruits? I think that's what what. What college football has become is is as much about those things as it is as the front facing visible things that that people identify with in terms of coaches.
0: yeah, it's like a really expensive marketing firm um, <laughs> and then uh that kind of dovetails nicely with recruiting um so the 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 two parter here is essentially. Does ASU have the first pick of the best recruits in its area, which I guess you could define define as the entire state of Arizona, but you touched on earlier how important LA is, but touching on Arizona first, and then how valuable is that pool? And then generally, how is ASU thought of nationally? So you can take that in whatever order you want.
2: Right. So to answer your first question, the answer is no. Um, there was a time... When when that was absolutely true. When I started doing this in the early to mid 2000s, uh, the state wasn't as uh, it wasn't as as recruited by national programs. Um, you guys will remember, certainly Ryan will remember when Everson Griffin was recruited by ASU, and when uh, Devon Kennard was recruited. I mean, pardon me, by USC, right? And when Devon Kennard was recruited by USC, uh, though that was when things started to change. That was when not just your your Pac-12 competitors like the USC or Stanford came in and decided to recruit one or two kids a year. Um, you started to see Michigan, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M, and other national programs, Nebraska. They started to come in and spend more time. They, they felt like it was soft in terms of ASU's ability to keep those kids home, and they felt like there was enough, just enough talent burgeoning that they would be able to, to, to have it not be a waste of their time. And, um, and so the, what corresponded with that was um, an a improvement of talent in Arizona, uh, the, the uh, expansion of the population, which was part of the housing boom before the, the, the bust in the market, um, so, like mid to late 2000s, that really started to pick up. The number of kids doubled, probably who were D1 in the state overall doubled. Maybe, maybe a 50% increase in the number of uh, Power Five kids, and then and then the state sort of became uh mined in in recruiting, I think, uh, to some degree. But what happened was, where in, in the past ASU was always getting half or more of the top 10 kids in the state uh it started to struggle to get a few of the top 10 kids in the state and now uh you look at it last year asu uh got one i think of the 10 depending upon like whose rankings you go by right and then this year asu will get zero or one of the top 10 probably and that's a really bad that's a really really bad result you you can't You look around the country, there's no program in the country that is winning at the level that ASU aspires to win at that is also uh, getting that low of a percentage of the best players from its home state to stay. Uh, And so that they know they have to reverse that. One of the things that metaphorically you've heard for the last literally four staff has we want to build a fence around – the Valley and keep the best kids here, but that hasn't really materialized. Now, I think that the, the, the facilities improvements with the stadium, lowering capacity, having a better atmosphere, closer to sellouts or sellouts for most of the games, uh, the having a facility that competes with other best schools in the, in the PAC 12 or even nationally, that, that helps change uh, the perception of ASU in that regard. If you have a staff that's going to work, and and do its part so I think they have a chance to improve in some of those areas Um, and I think that the state is good enough that ASU could probably if it wanted to if it was if it was capable of doing so uh, probably taking 8 to 12 kids a year Um, so you know almost you know half your class more than a third upwards of a half of your class could theoretically be from Arizona if ASU was killing it locally It's not a top 10 state. It's probably not a top 15 state, but it's it's in that probably you know borderline top 20 state. And there's enough players that ASU should be uh, able to not need to do as well in in some of the far flung areas. If ASU is getting 10 kids in Arizona and ASU is getting six, eight, 10 kids in California, well then all of a sudden you don't need to be recruiting that much in the south or in JUCOs and, uh, you know, the, the the Plains or wherever the case may be.
1: Um, Dave, do you want to do any more on recruiting, or do you want to uh, move on to the politics portion?
0: Well, I, I do want to touch on the national recruiting stuff. because okay. So in terms of rep, in terms of, like, when you're talking, when when ASU first contacts a kid who's, you know, in the south or out east or wherever, even in Texas, what what kind of is ASU's, you know, brand to that kid like is is that a known commodity for a lot of these recruits or is it something that it's like a selling proposition for the school to even get them to really consider asu what where where does it kind of stand in the makeup of national programs
2: well that that of course kind of varies depending upon you know kid to kid but i would say generally speaking there's not a great uh, uh brand id uh of asu some recently there's some kids that have really liked ASU's uniforms and uh, they think that maybe on TV, it's a good stadium vibe and they know that the weather is good or uh, that it's, it's a a livable place. But, but as far as like uh, any real depth of knowledge about ASU's program history, uh, you know, capability and, and, and things like that, more, more, uh, more substantial, you know things. I don't think there's really almost any of that a, 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 with uh, kids that are in the Eastern time zone, or maybe even a lot of kids that are in Central time zone. And some, um, uh, you know, familial connection, or there's some other thing that, that's driving their knowledge or understanding of ASU. And that's again, uh, you know, dovetailing on what I was saying previously. That that's why it's so important that ASU sh- shouldn't need to be in those markets. There's a reason why almost no programs have had sustainable success um, when they need to recruit uh, more than a third of their players outside of 600 miles. Uh, Oregon and Nebraska did it for a prolonged period of time. Nobody else ever has because they never ever had to, and that's why ASU shouldn't need to be relying on the Midwest or the South. You know, I understand there's a lot of talent there, but most of those kids are not going to end up at ASU. Um, You're going to lose those battles. In the end, quite often, and it's not worth the resource and time investment versus um, uh, what you're able to do in Southern California, Vegas, uh, L.A., and, uh, of course, in Arizona. If if you're if you're uh, executing uh, to the degree that you probably should be.
1: All right. um, I guess we'll move on to the third point, and that's uh, politics. So, I mean, this is maybe the most relevant because of all the, the recent changes at ASU, but does football have the necessary institutional support uh and competence from uh school administration? And how would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders?
2: Wow. A pretty complex, good question. Yeah. Um
1: Hitler Day's he's badass. You know, I- he's, he's he's a really good listener. <laughs>
2: He's he, well, okay. I, I, I'm going to try to make this as succinct as I possibly can. I think that you have a president in Michael Crow and, and a, a athletic director in Ray Anderson who do aspire to have those things and want those things. But the, the aspirational is different from a practical. I don't know that they understand from a practical standpoint, how those things uh, manifest like what 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 it takes to make that happen so that's why it's incumbent upon them to have the uh, the people who understand all of the granular detail of why and how um, uh, working underneath them and 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 that's 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 where when you add firm Edwards you start to lose people because people, understandably say well Herm Andrews doesn't have any of those things because he hasn't been coaching at all for 10 years and he hasn't been a college coach in 30 years and even though he grew up in California and, and you know has some sort of understanding basically of the Pac-12 you know what does he know how to do in terms of implementing uh, you know a, a, a comprehensive strategy for for success you know the nuts and bolts of it he doesn't right so so that means that the other people around ASU uh, have to be able to to do those things. And and Gene Boyd, who's now um, in, in essentially their general manager, he's he's new to overseeing football. Now he has he you know played the game. He's been around Pac-12 for three decades. Those are advantages, and he's done some really good things um, with the student athlete development. But that's but that's still different. Then, what's going to happen with how you, uh, you know, evaluate and uh, procure uh, recruiting, recruits? So, um, so what ASU is going to be doing now is they're going to be hiring people that they believe have what they need in those areas. Like that's what they're currently uh, uh, in the process of doing. They're actually, I I, I can't give names here. But like there is a name that, that you guys would know that everybody would know actually who follows recruiting that ASU is probably going to hire um, to help them in in the evaluation side uh, of things. Like this is a, a kind of a big name person, and it'll, I think it'll come out probably in a week or so. But um, and and so that's that's kind of what they are trying to accomplish. Um, you know the execution of that is obviously going to determine how successful that they are in the short and long term. And the book is still really out on that. I think there's some things that that kind of look like they're setting up reasonably well. Like for example, I think this this staff that they put together. When you look at Antonio Pierce, uh, Tony White, um, when you look at um, John Simon as a running backs coach, has done a really good job. Uh, on Nua, who they're bringing in to maybe help them with uh, Polynesian recruiting, former NFL player as a defensive lineman. Like, I think that there's actually the makings of having more uh, dynamic recruiters on the staff than they've had in the past. Because usually ASU, since I've been doing this, they've had one to maybe three guys who have actually been really good recruiters. And Now I think you may have uh, the – the, the prospects shaping up where you have four or five on your staff who are actually really good recruiters. And they have a lot of roots in Southern California. Danny Gonzalez would be another one who's their defensive coordinator. I mean, those guys did, did a good job at San Diego state, Tony white, Danny Gonzalez Antonio Pierce. I think he has a, uh, a, a unique uh, skill set and, and personality and background. Um, so, so that I think sets up well for them. Uh, Um, now i think fans expectations are i think asu has a lot of fans but they have a lot of casual fans they don't have a lot of the hardcore really passionate fans who are in the weeds at at understanding a lot of these things Mm -hmm. Uh, like a lot of them have um you know a lot of them i would say have just false perceptions about you know what asu should be able to accomplish and how easy that that is and and then and then uh, there's disappointment when those things don't happen, which keep them sort of on the sidelines of being fans uh, in a way that, that can all, can even tamp down the program to some degree. Um, now the fundraising efforts, I think with their, uh, their their, their booster outreach and everything that really improved quite a bit with the stadium project and, and subsequently. So that's actually pretty strong right now. And I think that is something that could, be an asset moving forward. Um, so, but it's just like, it's, it's overall, that's kind of a, a, a complex mosaic of things that, that, we're, that, we're, that we're getting into, that it's tough to really, um, you know, get an absolutely clear understanding of what that looks like from an outlook standpoint, you know, projecting into the future.
0: That was great. Yes. Was phenomenal. Love it,
1: Chris knows his uh, stuff. Thanks, man.
0: Um, uh, do uh, do you have anything else? Should we get to some of the Twitter questions real quick?
1: For I th- him, I think the Twitter questions are like kind of jokes. <laughs> do you see a good one? Like there's, like Dave, <laughs> uh, Dave Smith's. Yeah, they're like,
0: mostly just cracks on Herm Edwards.
1: Yeah, um, I thought there were like, some real ones in there, but I must have been. There, there
0: was one really like, good which? one, which was: Who will be ASU's top head coaching target for their upcoming opening? <laughs>
2: That's pretty funny. Hey, look, so here's the thing about Herm Edwards, right? Um, you know, I have thought about this a lot more. I've talked to a lot of people around ASU about it and everything. This is understandably looked at like, you know, almost like farcical with, with the college football media and people who are really hardcore into like following it. And I, I, on one hand, I get that because – you know, we we talked about it earlier, but this, you know, his profile, he didn't have a winning record as an NFL coach. He's now into his sixties and he hasn't coached in a long time and all these kinds of things. And then he says a lot of, a lot of stuff that's just kind of funny and makes it seem like he doesn't actually have a great working knowledge about things. Now, all that's, all that is kind of true on, on a surface level. But what I would also say is that Herm Edwards as a as a black older uh, distinguished kind of a personality, right? In terms of how he's perceived, he has a polish from being on TV a long time. Uh, He has played, coached, been an analyst. You know, there's a lot of sort of things that, even though this kind of superficial, it will probably resonate in in households. You know, with parents of recruits and even with recruits themselves in a a limited dosage in the right amount i think that actually could work and if you have really good recruiters surrounding that person who are good at at some of the more granular details of a lot of these things then um that actually may yield results if you're allocating your resources correctly which they seem to be because they are um you know they're, they're they're already showing Uh, a extreme commitment to offering 2020 and 2021 kids in, in the West, California and Hawaii and Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where they're spending the bulk of their time and all that stuff. So Ray Anderson said, we need to do a lot better in those areas. And we, and it's a talent game and we understand it's about recruiting and their facilities are better. And some of, some of those things. So, and I think defensively, uh, Danny Gonzalez is, is going to be calling plays for the first time, but the Rocky Long defense actually has been pretty uh, um, competent when they've played against better teams, Pac-12 teams. I think they've done a good job in the evaluation recruiting process down there. That that should actually um, reflect well on ASU. I, I think there's questions about their offense, and they don't. Really, I don't know that they have quarterback that's lined up for the next replacement of Wilkins. Uh, so there's issues there, but but I like. Big picture, right? I'm rambling a bit, but big big picture here. <laughs> um, ASU hasn't been really good at all in decades, okay? They had the two, you know, anomalous years of Rose Bowls. They had uh, back-to-back 10-win seasons when Todd Grant sort of struck lightning early on in his tenure. Other than that, it's been pretty, you know, lackluster. So what Ray Anderson is saying is what's really the risk here? The risk is maybe that we have a couple more years that aren't that great. And we learn that maybe this was a mistake, um, you know, versus we do what is maybe given us an average result uh, by hiring somebody that's a known entity and been fired somewhere else and, and, uh, and, and whatnot. And maybe that, maybe that gives us, Five years of winning seven or eight games, still, and nobody really—maybe it doesn't matter. You're you're just still ASU. You're the ASU that everybody's always always kind of known you to be. So there's something to be said about about a willingness to, um, you know, do like the really outside the box thing or outside the room that the box is located in thing that I talked about previously. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 um, at the same time, it's a very risk. It's a very risk tolerant move from a standpoint of that it may it may turn into where people are making a joke of it if it doesn't work out for you and then and then that affects the way that you're perceived uh which then causes some more lasting harm so um i don't know guys i'm just going to be around covering it every day right see what
1: happens. well it's funny because i mean we were hammering this from the very beginning but and i feel like we were early adapters of the hammering but everyone was doing it and then it gets to the point where like, we got a tweet from at Condor24, Condor with a K. What's the long term strategy in a short term self imposed bullpen, like a bull band, excuse me? Um, I mean, just everyone's taking kind of shots like that. Um, and it, I I think I've flipped and I don't think Dave has, but I'm to the point where I want no, him. No, no,
0: no, I, I won't be flipping. I and want him to succeed. <laughs> I want I, it to be I, like I, amazingly I think Chris successful. That's a compelling at this point. argument, though.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be. i like, I want to, at this point, it's like you beat it up so much. I'm like, I just want to see them win and see what happens, you know? But I don't like, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's kind of what I'm rooting for now.
2: Keep in mind, guys, you know, the most listeners of your podcast uh, would prefer that ASU not do well, right? So that's sort of your mindset going into how you perceive it to be. And so you want to filter everything through that sort of a lens. Like, oh, this is going to be a joke and here's all the reasons it's going to be bad. But guess what? Whether it's going to be bad or not is not going to be determined, for example, by how Herm Edwards does in a few radio interviews or television comments like that. That's like almost irrelevant. And yet and yet, like, that's where he's getting crushed over. You know, people are crushing him about what he has to say about 2019 recruiting or, you know, about, you know, whether he knew that the, that the Sun Devils were the mascot of ASU or whatever. And ultimately, th- those things are really good. But we live in this era. We live in the clickbait, you know, like the, 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 the bumper sticker era where people want to use that stuff for fodder to monetize and to get, you know, likes and retweets and whatever. But ultimately, those things really aren't going to have almost any impact on whether Herm Edwards actually is successful or
1: not. Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: Completely agree
1: with that. All right. Well, we—I uh, think Chris has just taken up time from Jason, so there's that rivalry there. He just wants to like, you know, beautiful. No, yeah.
2: Beautiful. Jason. <laughs> J- Jason is not as long-winded as me. No. We already know that going
0: in. <laughs> yeah. You were. you were be, actually. Be a you good doing us
2: He'll be good. Yeah. He'll be. He'll be good. But this was an. I, hey, you guys came to me with this thing, and it was. These were actually really good questions that you had to give kind of longer yeah. answers to really explain. The 360 degree perspective of us. So I appreciate you guys having me on, and sorry if I bored anybody.
1: No, no, not at all. That was great. I mean, Dave and I were the same way last week. It's like you start talking and you keep talking. And you're like, wow, we're talking for a long time. Uh, yeah, but there's, there's yeah,
2: because it's complex things that everybody yeah. wants to like distill down to some like pithy little thing that you say, and that's not that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is that all these things are extremely complex.
1: Uh, you also had something you wanted to plug. You got a story coming up Wednesday. Maybe we could, you, you want to mention that?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So you know, I mentioned Gene Boyd earlier, uh, in the podcast, who's basically, uh, going to be ASU's general manager of football, you know, an unofficial working title. And, uh, we have a, a very extended Q and A coming up with him on Wednesday and some other reporting, uh, based on that. So not just the, you know, all the signing day stuff that everybody's going to get, but, but people should come through and, and uh, if they want to understand the new leadership model uh, from somebody who's in charge of the new leadership model. Uh, they can actually go ahead and read that Q and a with that uh, gene boy.
1: All right. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Chris Cartman does an amazing job. We always say covering the sun devils uh, definitely dude, you want to hang out? You want to go down and have a beer with them on mill Ave. If you're going to Tempe or something, he's a good guy for that, but obviously just brings it when it comes to, Sun Devil Information, Sun Devil Source, does an amazing job. But, Chris, thanks again for, for coming on and joining the show.
2: Ryan, Dave, great to be with you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris.
1: Thank you, Chris. All right, well, that was awesome. But that's only half of the awesomeness of this podcast of Champions because now we got Jason Shear. So he's the publisher and senior editor at WildcatAuthority.com, also part of the 24-7 Sports Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Jason Jason Shear s-c-h-e-e-r is how you spell his last name and like i said wildcatauthority.com is where you can find all of his work what's up jason man thanks for coming on hey thanks for having me guys
0: jason so we've got um i just went over this with chris we've sent you these questions ahead of time but just again we're talking about the structural stuff uh, at every Pac 12 program uh strengths weaknesses of a lot of the internal stuff um and one of our listeners uh, sent us some questions, which we will now ask you. Um, the first section has to do with resources, um, basically the money associated with the school. And his question is, or questions, uh, does the school have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? Does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wants?
3: Well, it, it, it's an interesting situation because I am, um, you know, it, like for the last question, for instance, with the coaching change, I mean, they had to pay Rich Rodriguez $6.3 million just to hire Kevin Sumlin. I mean, what's interesting about that is, I mean, afterwards, it was pretty much where are they going to get the money from, and, and they hired Kevin Sumlin on the cheap. I mean, he's making a little over $2 million, and, and there's some elevators in his contract where he'll he'll be making a pretty good amount um, in a few years figuring he he does well and he sticks around. Um, but, in terms of financial resources, it, there's not a lot at Arizona right now. And one of the reasons is, is that $6 million. And, and also they have a lot of lawsuits going on. The athletic department is kind of a mess. Um, but credit the current athletic uh, director, Dave Tiki. They've, they've kind of gone other places. Um, Arizona was one of the few schools in the, in the conference that didn't have a student athletic fee. Um, they put one in last year. And so that money is going towards an indoor facility. Um, so they're building that. They're redoing part of the stadium. Um, so they they have the money um, to do those certain things. I don't, you know, they don't have the money and they'll never have the money at, say, like in Oregon or even a USC, UCLA. Um, but but they have a decent amount. Uh, the facilities, they have the Lowell Stevens. It, it's a pretty nice facility. Um, it was a lot nicer when it first came out because at, at this point everything is is kind of an arms race, and so while it was nice while it came out, other schools have kind of passed it by, which is why Arizona is kind of redoing the stadium um, and, and adding some other stuff. The indoor facility will finally be built, um, and, and so I think maybe when you compare it on the whole, Arizona is kind of kind of middle of the tier Pac-12, um, but realistically, that's probably where it should be. Also, just you know, historically where Arizona's football program has finished. Um, ideally, would they have more money? Yes. Um, Is it realistic? Probably not.
1: I think it's funny. Well, not funny. It's very interesting to me, Arizona known with the the great basketball program. But as far as executing a coaching hire, uh, if you look at what Arizona was able to do, you had to get rid of uh, a coach with some controversy and, like you said, pay over $6 million, and you're able to bring in a really good hire and not spend that much money in a Kevin Sumlin um just i it seemed like this was executed really well so like the last part of his question does, it, does the school have the financial ability to make a sudden high quality coaching change if it wants you could argue that you've already seen that over the last couple of months and maybe not with the right resources but just using those resources wisely they were able to pull it off
3: yeah i mean you know if someone comes in and says he wants 4 million a year I, I don't think they can do it um, to Arizona's credit, they did give a little money, more money to the assistant pool, um, so someone could could bring in Noel Mazzoni, which is the guy that he wanted to bring in, um, and, and maybe a few few other guys he wanted to bring in. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's an interesting contract because what they did, basically, what the Arizona Board of Regents did is they made Arizona and someone kind of walk in, and so someone really can't go anywhere for two years. If he leaves after the first year, it's a ten million dollar buyout he's responsible for. The second year is five, and then I think it goes to like two and a half after the third. And so, what they were able to do is like if he wins a certain amount of games, um, he gets like a, a pretty decent raise. And so like in three years, it'll go from like two million to three million, and it allows Arizona some time to, to kind of raise that money for the contract. Um, but but this is a coaching search that could have gone really really poorly, and and someone wasn't going to happen up until it, it pretty much happened. I mean, it was uh, you know I don't know the the whole details behind the door and all that, but someone was a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, it was pretty much going to be the Navy coach. And so the fact that they were able to bring in someone and and do so for cheap, um, was pretty remarkable.
0: I was actually kind of impressed with the names that came up. Um, it seemed like whoever was doing the evaluating, I mean, just the fact that Neil Brown was in the conversation. I think he's a really high quality coach. Ken Nio Matalolo, um, whatever Khalil Tate's thoughts on the subject. um,
3: (laughs) I I thought he would have
0: done a fine job. I mean, maybe, maybe he would have run the option, but um, I mean, he's a proven great coach at Navy. I guess the question for me um, is we talk about, you know, resources in terms of program goals. um, And I, you know, ask this of Chris and I'll ask it of you now, what are those realistic program football program goals for Arizona? Like what is, you know, and, and, and their realistic, you know, Scenario, what's the what's the thing you're reaching for at Arizona in terms of consistent program goals?
3: You know, it's, it's, and I hope not all Arizona fans get mad at me, but I think overall what history has shown is there's some kind of unrealistic expectations with Arizona football. Um, you know, I, I think ideally what everyone wants is that Rose Bowl. I mean, the fact that Arizona hasn't made a Rose Bowl is something it's reminded of every year. Um, it, and that's, you know, it, it's kind of, Rich Rodriguez said it. Um, Why not Arizona? He got Arizona to the Pac-12 title game. Um, Someone said it at his press conference. They just want a coach to bring him to the Rose Bowl. Um, You know, it could be one Rose Bowl in 10 years, and it'd still be be okay. Uh, But I think ideally the goal is just some kind of consistent improvement, and that's something like with Rich Rodriguez that never happened. I mean, Arizona had that one good year where it it lost to Oregon in the Pac-12 title game and lost in the Fiesta Bowl, Um, and then it kind of went downhill from there. If someone can win eight, nine games a year, maybe once in a while challenge to go to a Rose Bowl, um, I, I think Arizona fans would generally be content. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with recruiting. I mean, Arizona hasn't had uh, – Mike juice recruited pretty well, but not great. Rich Rodriguez didn't recruit well at all. Um, if someone could come in and recruit, I, I think Arizona would uh, – Arizona fans would be fine with it. They'd, they'd be happy about it. But it, it's just – I think eight, nine wins with bowl wins and, and consistently maybe challenging for the – the pac 12 South, I think Arizona fans would, would generally be fine. I don't think they expect to be a top ten team every year. It's just some kind of enjoyable football to watch. And under Rich Rodriguez, it just stopped being fun to watch. And I think that's why attendance went down dramatically and, and he kind of pretty much lost all support
1: locally. You want to move on to number two, Dave?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Um okay, so this is you mentioned recruiting, Jason. Uh, does the school so this is the Hitler Day's question. Does the school have First pick of the best recruits in the area and how valuable is that pool and how is the school thought of by national uh, recruits? It was interesting to hear what uh, Chris had to say as far as – we're we're calling the local area basically like the state of Arizona. Um, He he certainly didn't feel Arizona State had the first pick. What do you think about Arizona?
3: No, not at all. I mean, Arizona is one of these states where it it takes a major, major effort to get these kids to stay in state. And there hasn't been a coach in recent memory at ASU or Arizona that's been able to do it. And, and the hope for Arizona, at least, is that someone is that guy. Because when you look at someone, he's landed more top Arizona prospects than both Arizona and ASU. I mean, <laughs> he, he was able to come into Arizona uh, and land Christian Kirk. And Arizona and ASU um, didn't really – they weren't really in there. Uh, Arizona definitely wasn't. And in Arizona, for instance, there are schools in, in Phoenix like Scottsdale, Saguaro. Um, and Chandler, Chandler Hamilton, uh, Arizona can't even get in there. I mean, they uh, if there's a good prospect there, uh, it, they just they can't get them. And maybe it changes with someone, but it's such a battle to keep these kids in state with just with ASU and Arizona. Um, it, it's just maybe someone changes it. Um, it, it but, but even him, as good of a recruiter as he is, and he's shown, it's, it's going to take a heck of an effort. Arizona has not been able to keep the top guys in state, and they haven't even been able to get, um, official visits or even unofficial visits from the top guys in state. It, it's been a a complete losing battle on that end.
0: And so when you're when you're projecting, so going back to those program goals, when you're talking about Arizona, you know potentially getting to that seven, eight, nine consistent wins per year and uh, competing for Rose Bowl. What does that? What is that recruiting makeup of those of those class of those teams? Um, like, what's the ideal recruiting makeup and what's the realistic recruiting makeup for a, you know, a Rose Bowl, Arizona team? What In is their strategy? Like what are they, what are they, yeah What do they have to recruit? Who do they have to recruit? Where do they have to recruit?
3: I think there's three places, and and one of them, like Rich Rodriguez failed in my my opinion. He came to Arizona, and he said basically that he wasn't going to recruit Texas because his assistants didn't have ties there. And I think if you're at Arizona, you have to recruit Texas. It's right there. There's so much talent. And, like, someone's come in, and, like, I, I know he has Texas ties, but he's pretty much been dominating Texas in terms of offers and where his coaches have been. And, like, for instance, the only assistant coach he kept from the last staff. Um, is Theron H, the wide receivers coach, and that's because he recruits Texas. And so it'll be Texas, it'll be Arizona, it'll be California, and then and maybe they'll get out there a couple other places. Um, they have some connections in Vegas. Uh, Mazzoni has some connections in Washington D.C. They've offered a couple guys there. But if Arizona is going to succeed, it needs to find a way to to land consistently, you know, solid players from Texas, and it needs to find a way to at least land some top head players in the state. I mean, it, it hasn't even landed top 10 players in the past. And and, and it's not going to all of a sudden start leaning all of them, but maybe a few of these blue chip prospects, maybe one or two of them try to stay home and, and come to Arizona. I mean, Arizona have local kids, for instance, and they signed Jamari Joyner, who's a solid quarterback, but there's a four star offensive lineman, Mateo Malay, who, who didn't even look at Arizona. Um, he literally goes to school 10 minutes from campus. Um, and, and so it's guys like that, that I think Arizona is going to succeed. It needs to find, uh, a way to keep them home. I mean, like 2020, there's a guy USC just offered today, John Robinson, who's outstanding. And he goes, again, to high school 10 minutes away from campus. So if Arizona's going to do well, it has to find a way to keep those guys home. It has to find a way to land the Southern California talent, maybe not over USC and UCLA, but uh, maybe over schools like Washington or Cal or, or, or Oregon or schools like that, at least compete with them for, for landing SoCal talent. And then Texas, I, I think we're going to see Texas be a just like a major major target for for the new coaching staff it already is um if they can go there and land some solid players i I think arizona will be just fine in that regard
1: so jason it sounds like the second part of the question about how the school is thought of by national recruits probably in a bit of a transition right now um with you know kevin someone having all the texas ties and him killing it there but you know maybe give your thoughts on that not just texas and california but like just full-on nationally how you think arizona is portrayed
3: I, you know, to me, I, I naturally it's probably not looked up um, as highly. I, I think there's other schools in the Pac-12 that are definitely look higher than Arizona. It's probably looked at a middle of the road. Um, but with that being said, there is some momentum with Kevin Sumlin, so there is some attention um, because Arizona's hire was so late. He was on a lot of the national programs. He was on radio, television. Um, it was a big deal when he got hired because there were no other coaching searches, and and so they've used that momentum a little bit in recruiting and offering guys and. And getting mentioned out there. Um, right now, it's probably somewhat of an afterthought in general, but I think if someone wins um, with his connections and all that, it'll maybe raise it. They're not going to be seen with these elite programs, but um, I'm not sure Arizona's really thought of nationally, and maybe you know someone will change that, but right now, it's probably just one of those schools that's kind of just another school.
0: All right, then we want to get to the third uh, section of this, which is the politics of the program. So, uh, this is kind of a multifaceted question, and you could probably go super in-depth on it. But um, does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? That's the first part. And the second part, how would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders?
3: If you would to ask me this question a year ago, I would have said absolutely not. Um, Arizona's changed athletic directors and school presidents. And I think the school president was uh, a big one. Uh, he was instrumental in landing someone. Everybody likes him. Um, great guy, really, really into sports. He's courtside for every single Arizona basketball game, um, stands up, cheers, fans love him. He goes to the student section and all that. Um, so, in terms of support, uh, they have it 100% from him. And, and he knows what he's doing. Um, Arizona is kind of in an overhaul right now with, with all the lawsuits and all that. Um, like, I think there's four lawsuits going on right now. So they're kind of um, cleaning house a little bit. Someone came in, for instance, and he he basically, if you had any ties to Rich Rodriguez, you were gone. Um, basketball, they're dealing with the whole FBI scandal. Um, there, there's support, but there's also the sense where if something's wrong, they're going to go out and, and fix it. Um, the last president, President uh, Ann, Ann Weaver Hart, she was not well-liked at all. Um, people are still, they just don't like her at all. They're still better about her. Um, so in terms of if she was still here, uh, I don't think she would have any support of sports and athletics or, or people from the outside. Um, I think now it's a much different situation than it was a year ago, but, but there's a lot to clean up. Um, and so what you're seeing is they have to sell the fans. The fans are kind of disheartened with the FBI stuff, with basketball, with Rich Rodriguez and football. Someone was a nice step. Um, boosters have been asked for a lot of money. Um but, you know, the six million to buy at Rich Rod is not something that they could get easily. Um and, and so there's kind of factions and it's kind of the deal where they want something good to happen in the athletic department and it feels like it's been a while since that happened. And, and I think going forward it may be a little harder to raise money. Um, but if anyone can do it, it's the new athletic director and president because they're they're very well liked around town.
1: And then I guess the uh, the second part of that. How would you describe the divisions between the fan base, the boosters, and the insiders?
3: Uh, it's, you know, it, it's it's interesting right now. I think the fan base and the boosters are, are pretty similar in, in what they want. Um, I think everyone's kind of hesitant re- regarding Arizona athletics. Um, and right now, in terms of insiders and, and people, it's not – not a lot of people are, it's kind of, their. everyone's watching their behind basically because there's so much going on so much, you know, the lawsuits and Rich Rodriguez has a lawsuit and there's a lawsuit with track and field and there's a lawsuit with the well, running back and the domestic violence and the FBI thing. So in terms of insiders and boosters, um, everyone's kind of watching their back. Everyone's being really careful. I I personally have been doing this for a while. I've never seen an AD um, like this and, and people kind of, everyone's kind of scared to talk and scared to kind of voice their opinion more than um, usual. And for instance, like the board of regents, the head of the board of regents, he's making his opinion known. Um, and, and he wants a thing where basically schools have to protect themselves with multi-year contracts and all that. I'm not sure we've heard from a board of regents since I've been covering sports here in Tucson. It, it's, it's a different feeling overall with the athletic di- director and the whole uh, athletic department. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, everyone's kind of stepping around quietly and stepping on eggshells. And and so it's a really interesting dynamic because it feels like it could break any moment, but it also feels like if something eventually goes right for the athletic department, um, it'll maybe change momentum a little bit. But I, I think, for instance, like the basketball thing with the FBI has kind of put everyone, you know, waiting to see what happens, football, the, the numerous lawsuits, what's going to happen there. Um, it, it's just, it's a really interesting situation because there's so much going on. Within different departments of the athletic department, I,
0: I know it much gets made of <clears throat> basketball schools, you know, being basketball schools. I was wondering, from a revenue perspective, is Arizona, does Arizona get um, more of its revenue from basketball or football?
3: Arizona, if you ask the basketball program what they want in terms of revenue, they should, they, they would tell you they need football to be better because at right. the end of the day, no matter how good basketball is, the money's coming from football. Uh, it's coming from football with attendance apparel everything and so the best scenario for basketball in terms of money financially would be if football does better because that's where the money comes from i mean i don't know of a lot of schools that make more money from basketball than football just because the sheer volume i mean even if you're looking at attendance and food sales and all that um it's just you're making more money in that regard and and even with beer i mean arizona's talking about putting beer in football games which make a ton of money and so uh you know Arizona is known as a basketball school but it's the football program at the end of the day that'll support everyone financially
0: yeah i just wanted you to say it cuz I, <laughs> I i believe that really really strongly about basically any school that anybody calls a basketball school besides butler that uh, yeah they're 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 driven by football kentucky is driven by football yeah, that 100%. sec money is coming from football not basketball 100%
1: yeah. I mean, like a place like Kentucky or Kansas, like maybe it's closer, but it's still, I mean, you see the whole Big East go away. I mean, that was because of football. It wasn't because of all the basketball stuff. Um, what I don't know if you have a follow up for, for politics, Dave, but I thought we could, unless you, if you don't, um, we were going to talk about the Super Bowl, like kind of quickly. There was a, you know, really good representation. Uh, from the Pac-12 and the Super Bowl led by Stanford, I think had five players in there. But if you want to look at like maybe the most important player on the Patriots, I mean, Gronk caught two touchdowns yesterday, Arizona guy. And of course the Super Bowl MVP, Nick Foles, who was a backup, like was, you know, contemplating giving up football. And now he's a Super Bowl MVP. So that can't help. Uh, I mean, that can't hurt Kevin Sublin and, and him on the recruiting trail when you have some prominent players like that, uh, per, you know, taking part in the Super Bowl.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say this: Arizona offered a, a Kevin Doyle, who was a Michigan commit at quarterback, and I think if he commits, he'd be Arizona's top guy. Um, he Arizona offered him. He visited Arizona last week. His background picture right now is Nick Foles. He changed <laughs> it after last night. Wow! Um, I guarantee you, there's a conversation between someone and him about Nick Foles. Um, the kid's from D.C. Uh, it just, it's yeah. I mean, it's at the very least, it puts Arizona in spotlight. They had Foles. Marquise Flowers is on the Patriots. Gronk's on the Patriots. Um, The Eagles' special teams coach was a coach here at Arizona and played here. Um, It it was a really cool uh, situation in Tucson. It got a ton of uh, attention locally, and it can't hurt. I'm sure someone's bringing that up to everybody that will listen. every tight end and quarterback, and even though it has has nothing to do with him, uh, I'm sure he'll find a way to, to get that in recruiting pitch.
1: Uh, Michigan State also tweeted out something like he, Nick Foles was there for like a semester or something. And then I saw them Yeah, getting... they tried to
3: take credit for him. That was great. <laughs> that was great.
1: <laughs> they got crushed on Twitter. From they were deleting
3: saw. it, which is even better.
1: Oh, they deleted it.
0: Yeah. yeah, they
3: deleted it. Once once they took too much heat for it, they decided that maybe they should take that tweet out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In light of everything else going on at Michigan State, probably a good choice. <laughs> yeah. Just, just avoid any extra controversy these days, guys.
1: Nice. Well that's cool. Jason, hey, we appreciate it. Um did you have anything else, Dave? Or
0: No, that was great. Uh really succinct after uh after our man Cartman. <laughs> it was great too. But that was that was great. We loved uh we loved the breakdown. Yeah. Cool. I appreciate it, guys.
1: Yeah. Well thanks. That's Jason Shear. Make sure you check him out on Wildcat Authority. Uh Jason, thanks again. And uh hopefully uh we, we talk to you again real soon. Thanks so much.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Awesome, man. Well, hey, we followed up. We said we were going to do something, Dave, and we did it. So, the the desert schools are down. Now we got to get the mountain schools and the rest of the uh, Pac twelve North. So, um, I, two weeks in a row, we did what we said. So, I'm I'm proud of us. We are
0: suddenly a third <laughs> of the way through this series. All right, crazy. That's how I'm looking at it. It's great. We've got some questions to answer. Oh, okay should we answer some questions yeah we
1: should uh, we should probably do that not as many questions as we have got before but you know it's the off season so that's uh
0: yeah it's understandable the volume would would decrease a little bit um all right so first up i'm going to ask a twitter question kind of a comment but a question as well uh this is from chad morrow uh at coach morrow osu um one thought slash Question on conference discrepancy in number of league games played comparing eight versus nine games. What if, the, what if the NCAA football changed rules to give other advantages to conferences who play nine games? A couple thoughts would be to give all conference teams the extra month of practice both teams receive regardless of bowl eligibility. Another could be adding number of official visits schools can offer, uh, give advantage to conferences that play a full schedule. I like the idea. I don't know how realistic that is from an NCAA mandated standpoint. Um, I don't know if they can do things that are that uneven between the power five con yeah. conferences. I would imagine there's some conference stipulations there and some contracting stuff that would make that more or less impossible, but I'd love the experiment. Um, if they deter, I, I, I but I think it's incumbent on the conferences to eventually even this out. And I think it's probably more likely going to be, um, the Pac-12 and whoever else does the nine game caving to eight than it is vice versa. I don't see the other conferences going up to nine.
1: Yeah. This kind of sounds like the coach is basically saying we want to make everyone go to nine. So this will force them to. So you give someone a big advantage. I mean, you could say, Oh, if, if you play nine conference games, you get 90 scholarships instead of 85 or something like that. Like some, some of that stuff, you get an extra month of practice, you get more official visits. Like, those are pretty big advantages. So I don't think, you know, Alabama's in the SEC. They only play eight. Do you think Nick Saban would stand for that where, um, you know, uh, Ohio State was going because they have nine conference games, they would get extra uh, recruiting advantage against Alabama. And like, no, he's not going to stand for that. But I get what he's saying is more about, at least to me, it's more about, hey, we have to incentivize everyone to get to nine or, you know, at, like. You said maybe people go back to eight and it's better to have four non-conference games. But it, the way it is right now, um, where you had some teams vying for a playoff spot that had played 10 uh, conference games because of the conference championship and Alabama getting in who had only played eight. Um, that's too big of a discrepancy for me.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, one way or another, they need to all figure it out. And yeah. Whether it's eight, I think eight would be tough for Pac-12 schools just getting... A fourth non conference team in when uh, a lot of these schools already struggled to schedule kind of three because there are fewer West Coast um, group of five schools to play. Um, so you almost have to drop down to like the Eastern Washington level, Portland State level, but maybe that's the way they'll go. Um, I mean, it would certainly at least make things a little bit more even, the SEC in particular.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd mentioned uh, the Super Bowl. We had a couple of tweets about it. Forrest, said, are the Eagles an all-star Pac-12 team with Foles, Blunt, Aguilar, and Ertz? Only if Alshon Jeffrey went to the other USC, it would be perfect. He actually was committed to the, U- the other USC, Southern California, for like a year or something. Then he switched at the end to stay home in South Carolina. Um, sad Donald Trump tweeted us, uh, Nick Foles, baby, Conference of Champions. Um, and Dezothra, D-E-E-Z-O-T, Dizothra. How about that they're Nick Foles and Nelson Aguilar? Hashtag Pac-12, hashtag Super Bowl 52. So, we you know, we didn't have a lot of great Pac-12 football news to report on, especially with the Bulls, but some prominent Pac-12 players, Dave, in the uh, Super Bowls at least gives a little pick-me-up, a little, little pep in our step now covering the Pac-12. Uh,
0: the Pac-12 doesn't seem to have any trouble producing professional football players. It's just producing college football championships <laughs> where they seem to have more
1: difficulty. Yeah. Uh,
0: All right, we got some email questions.
1: Okay, where are we we going first?
0: All right, this is from Alan, who is 1977 Trojan on the Peristyle. Greetings, Ryan and David. Love the podcast, and I listen regularly. I enjoyed the most recent one delving into the infrastructure of USC and UCLA. It will be interesting to hear how things are at the other Pac-12 schools for people that closely follow the respective schools. Will you be doing a show after the traditional signing day examining the recruiting classes of each Pac-12 team and how those recruits fit into their programs and their possible impacts on the upcoming season?
1: I Uh, think that's the plan. Um, Yeah. We might have to take a break from this series to do, like, recruiting next week. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. Get Huffman or Biggins on.
1: Yeah. Um, Those guys, I mean, they know their stuff when it comes to west coast uh recruiting so either one of those guys you know we're really lucky at twenty four seven sports because we got both of those guys or even blair and gulo too um so i think yeah well we definitely want to do that and kind of give a recap and it's probably better to have a national guy on who can touch on everybody as opposed to getting super in depth on the you know the 25th guy that oregon state brought in you know you want to we want to get that overall view uh and we'll see where everybody's ranked and stuff we'll go through the the 24 seven rankings and all that stuff. And so it should be, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's make a plan to do that next week. And we'll put pause uh, this thing before we get to, we'll probably do Utah and Colorado next. So start with them again the following week. Um, you want me to read this? SoCal five-star recruits who didn't go to UCLA or USC.
1: Yeah. Where was that one? I, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Oh, so this I gotcha. is
0: from, uh, go UCLA. A O five from the bro board. Um, So he really loved her most recent podcast. I'm going to skim this. He's a a frequent poster on the bro board, frequent asker of questions during my mailbags. He's uh, very good, but a little (laughs) long-winded. So I'm just going to skim a little bit. Uh, So he used the rankings to... So we asked that question, um, how many five-star recruits from Southern California did not go to USC or UCLA? I, I think we framed it where it was how many went to another Pac-12 school that wasn't UCLA or USC. Yeah, I think that's what we um, were talking and, about. Yeah. yeah, he kind of broke it down from both perspectives. So um, from 2008 through 2017, Southern California produced 34 five-star recruits. Of that group, 17, so 50% went to USC. Six went to UCLA, so that's about uh, 20, uh, 19, 18%, somewhere in that range. Um, And then how many left Southern California was 11. Um, So about a third leave. Um, But the ones who left for another Pac-12 school. So the ones who left Wyatt Davis in 2017 left for Ohio State. Uh, Caleb Kelly in 2016 left for Oklahoma. Uh, In 2015, Blake Barnett left for Alabama. In 2013, Max Redfield left for Notre Dame. And so then in 2010, Ronald Powell and Josh Shaw both left Florida, but of course Shaw came back to USC and then, uh, there's Darrell Scott who went to Colorado, I believe if I'm yeah. remembering correctly.
1: Yeah. He and went to Dane, Colorado and I think Huffman still thinks that's like the, one of his worst evaluations ever. So <laughs> cause he was, and not, uh, <laughs> he Dane, was not a five.
0: Chris, was that a Notre Dame one as well? Uh,
1: I believe he was right. Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. So of, of, of the um, ones who left um, SoCal, the only ones who actually signed with a current or who signed with a Pac 12 school or a Pac 10 school at that time were Vontes Perfect and D'Anthony Thomas, and then I guess Durel Scott if you include him. So only three of the 34 five stars uh, produced out of Southern California since 2008 uh, ended up at other Pac 12 schools besides UC- USC and UCLA.
1: Yeah, which is kind of so- basically what we thought, right? It was something along yeah. those lines
0: but that's interesting okay
1: so cool yeah um all right i think let's see we have one the alex the next one alex from pasadena does that make sense
0: yeah let's do it
1: okay sup fellas sup alex he must be young and hip you think, mm-hmm. I, think I think Alex. So. he's that young and hip
0: sounds like a young and hip thing to say <laughs> sup fellas
1: first off excuse me first off the last podcast was less than two hours I don't feel I got my money's worth. Uh, uh am I ready? Am I, I'm sorry. Am I really getting what I paid for? Ha, ha, ha. So I'm sorry. This one's going to be closer, right? We'll be closer to two hours. I this think one.
0: this will be close to two
1: hours. Yeah. Uh, okay. On to my question. In regards to recruiting, I'm seeing a trend of coaches visiting these quote unquote training facilities more often, usually where a certain seven on seven team hold workouts in quotes. Uh, how much are these seven on seven clubs impacting recruiting? Are programs really, uh, taking these more seriously? I don't like the seven on seven circuit feels a lot like how AAU, uh, is ru- or has ruined basketball. Um, these are ruining football creates a ton of bad habits. I know the recruiting sites love these tournaments and cover them, but what are your thoughts? Thanks again for the great work. Uh, keep fighting the good fight, Alex in Pasadena. And, uh, I, I, I think there's some similarities, but I think it's still a long way off, uh, the seven on seven circuit to AAU. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's tournaments like now, even before signing day, it seems like they're starting. Um, they never really happened until like, you know, spring and now they're happening the week after signing day. You're already seeing these tournaments. Um, it's as far as bad habits. I mean, I think you get some pretty good coaching out there it's it's more chances to play football. I don't know. I haven't really heard that argument there's they're kind of teaching bad habits. Um and you know, I do like covering them, but even us there it's all the time. So there's so many 7 on 7 tournaments now that circuit's so huge that you really don't even get a break. Like if you you you're exhausted after signing day and 3 days later you got to go cover <laughs> a tournament. Yeah. It's a little bit strange. What do you think, Dave?
0: I I found them exhausting. Um, it is literally every week starting after signing day, I want to say. Um, and now it sounds like it's even starting a little bit before. Um, so from like a reporting perspective, I, I, I mean, it'd be nice to have one of those a month, but having them every weekend, it's just, it can get, uh, a little bit much, um, especially when you're seeing the same guys doing the same things every single week. Um, from the other perspective, like the AAUization, I think, yeah, in terms of the handlers and stuff, um, I think there's some of that going on. Um, you know, in the LA hotbed region, I think there's definitely some element of that. Um, I think up until uh, <laughs> this recent FBI investigation, I think the shoe companies were getting a little bit progressively more involved, and I've seen that kind of drop off a little bit, um, but, but I still think that's an element too. But the bad habits with AAU basketball have more to do with um, the deprioritization of winning, as far as I'm concerned, um, because you're playing so many games with like different guys. You're playing like, I don't know, some of these times they're playing like three or four games in a day and you're in these never ending tournaments all throughout the summer and spring. And I just don't think it's, you know, I, I think winning the games and playing good basketball are less of priority, but the the fundamental difference with seven on seven is it's not really football. Like it's elaborate passing practice, um, and so I, I think it's not it's not necessarily, you know, uh, you're not playing a football game. It's not like you're going out there and like suiting up and and hitting and doing everything you would do in an actual game. You're kind of just practicing your route concepts, and then you know, especially once they start doing the high school stuff in April and May. Um, you know, where they do seven on seven with their high school teams. They're just, I mean, they're practicing the route concepts that they're going to use later on in the year. So I think it's actually effective practice. Um, And it's not, you know, so much like a real game, like AAU, it's, it's basketball. It's just basketball in kind of a garbage format. Um, This is, it's kind of a different sport. So I don't know how much it, I I don't know, maybe that's kind of a, a weird answer, but I don't know how much it impacts like kind of the mentality of it for the players. I don't know if it like, desensitizes them to losing because it's like it'd be like if you were playing knockout or elimination or whatever you call it on weekends i mean is that going to change your ability to play competitively in an actual basketball game probably not um and seven on seven isn't i mean it's just not really football so it's it's like playing a different thing and practicing
1: yeah it's like huge horse tournaments or something for basketball yeah. or something. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. It's like playing around the world. And like, you know, it's it's not really a – it doesn't really correlate on a one-to-one level. It's, it's a different thing entirely.
1: And I, I think there's some definitely useful aspects because I think there's guys that would get on that circuit and uh, maybe they're from a smaller school, they don't get to play against good competition, and you get to see them. It gets better competition and helps them get more scholarship offers and things like that. I'm not saying that it wouldn't get them all, you know, but it's, it's an easier way, I guess, for some of the guys that, you know, don't have the same advantages to get noticed. Now, sometimes we get oversaturated with certain players that they just love playing. So you see them, they're in every tournament every week. We get to see them all the time. Other guys are like, they're not playing all that much. So that maybe that one tournament they're playing in, we want to go see that one because, Hey, this is a kid we we never get to see. And we get to see them. So we get to see a lot of the same dudes kind of over and over. And I think another aspect is it's much more regional. Like I think in Southern California, it's very prominent that there's I, – I think the seven-on-seven seven teams, the club kind of teams, the traveling teams or whatever are much more prominent. And there's still like a section, like Dave said, of the high school teams. But I think the bigger version of it is when you're with your club teams. I think in Texas it's different. I think it's mostly high schools there. They have, a, a I guess, a little bit more control over it there. So it's not like this – national thing where everyone's doing it the same the same way uh but i think you know i just haven't seen the same sort of issues i haven't covered basketball as much but the same sort of issues with the handlers there's there's certain aspects of that um but i think it's i think it's better i think than basketball for sure
0: yeah well there's not nearly as much uh i mean well it's not as focused the money in football um as it is in basketball basketball there's like 100 top guys that everyone's trying to get. And so the amount of money that's being paid to handlers and illicit people around them is just it's a lot more because yeah. there's there's you know there's more guy, there's fewer guys to focus on. With football, yeah, it's I mean it's a it's a, a yeah, it's a dirty sport too. I mean like in terms of, you know, trying to actually compensate people for their work. I know it's a shocking idea. Um, but <laughs> in in terms of that in terms of this quote unquote cheating um, football is like that too it's just it's less concentrated and it's harder to identify guys early like in basketball you know the top uh, you know the top guys in like ninth grade they're probably going to end up the top guys or near the top guys in their junior or senior years just because you know guys you know when you see a 6'6 baby faced guy yeah he's probably going to be 6'9 6'10 super athletic and you know be a top guy. In football, you know, guys are just not developed muscularly yet. I mean, even by the time they're high school juniors or seniors, it can be hard to tell. Yeah. Um, and you need to, you need a requisite amount of strength um, that you maybe don't need as much of in basketball. But um, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder to focus on guys and, you know, pay them the really big bucks um, in football. So I think it contributes to the idea, if not the actuality, that it's a little bit less dirty of a sport.
1: And it's funny. So you mentioned that, like, you knew who LeBron James was in seventh grade. Like, oh, for sure. It was like, yeah. that's LeBron James. Like, you know, he's going to win the NBA championship a couple of times. You know, that you knew that in seventh grade. Who's the best, you know, you could argue Tom Brady's the best player in the NFL and he wasn't even starting in college, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's very, very different.
0: Yeah. I mean, who are like the, 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 the rare ones so with with basketball you can name any number of guys and yeah everyone knew about them as a ninth grader or for the most part you know probably 50 60% of the guys who were really good as seniors in high school everyone knew about them pretty early on but if you look at football like the the ones who got identified super early like Dylan Moses I remember him the running back out of Louisiana and I think yeah he turned out to be an excellent prospect so that's one but then who was that quarterback who ended up the tight end for West Virginia who was committed to USC? What's his name again?
1: Oh crap. Um,
0: David Sills, David Sills. David yeah. Sills. He was the next big thing. And now he's not even playing quarterback for West Virginia after, you know, being you know top guy and, you know, JT Daniels is a, is a potentially a positive example because he was big time prospect as like an eighth grader. And now he might, um, start for USC next year. So, but but those are, I think, the rarities. I don't think you're often seeing, you know, the easy identification of guys at you know the ninth grade level or eighth grade level.
1: Yeah. I mean, just it's like you don't have to find it's a lot of, a lot of people try to, you know, oh, that guy was a two star recruiting doesn't matter. It's like, yeah, OK, that's the exception or the rule. Like the exception would be a, the NBA superstar that you didn't really know much about when he was in ninth grade, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. Um, that's, you pretty much know. So it's, it's definitely a different sort of sport. And with, you know, football, there's more people on the field. Uh, you're wearing a helmet. You're not, it's not like identifying a person. Most of those AAU things, you're trying to get this dude's particular dude to wear your shoes, right? Like that's, that's kind of like the whole point.
0: Yeah. And and, yeah. And you're just so, I mean, and it's a different environment like the evaluation it's like a cattle call i mean you've got so at the big aau events in like april and then in in july there's just college coaches just sitting around watching the same players game i mean just that focused attention that there really isn't a situation that's like that in college football these days um like I guess some big high school football game that draws like a few different head coaches would probably be like the closest equivalent. But I mean, even that, I don't know that it necessarily is. I mean, I think they used to allow coaches at like some of those, like essentially the Nike camps. I think they used to do that. I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, And that would be
0: maybe the closest equivalent, but, um, no, there just isn't anything like it. You know, you, you go to, I mean, you go to try to watch whoever, um, Whatever big time recruit say, you know, a few years ago, you'd go to watch uh, Stanley Johnson, the guy who committed to Arizona, was five star local. Um, you'd go to his AAU game, and there'd be, you know, probably five head coaches, a bunch of different assistants from different programs, all there to watch essentially this one kid, or maybe a couple other kids on his team. Um, that just, you know, that kind of a that kind of focus on a player just doesn't really happen in football, and it, that focus comes with. Especially for the big time guys, a good deal of money.
1: Yeah. We've heard um, a lot of stories in football too, where like, how is Aaron Rodgers like discovered or whatever? Well, like they were scouting somebody else and like, hey, who's that quarterback? And I think Steven Montez was the same way out of uh, El Paso, where they weren't really looking at him. And, uh, you know, Colorado saw something when they were recruiting somebody else. I mean, I, I don't, do you think that happens ever in basketball where you're like, you know, you're there for, oh, in, for uh,
0: sure. With, with the best staffs, definitely. Like, the ones who are really good at evaluating and doing their due diligence. But a lot of the coaches see that sort of, like, going to AAU stuff as essentially babysitting. It's not really the time to evaluate. It's the time to put in some face time so that the kid sees you're there. Because it is, like, the, the basketball recruits are much more diva-esque than the football guys. Because, again, they're getting that attention from the time they're, you know, ninth 10th grade. Um, and so... The best coaches will spend some time evaluating other guys and watching other guys, but uh, for the most part, they're there just to, you know, see and be seen by the player.
1: It's kind of funny. It's well, I mean, that's not what we do, but when like if Dave and I are going to a high school football game, a lot of times it's for one dude like we are there basically to see one guy and like parents might come up to you and like, Hey, make sure you look at number 17. He's my son. Now he's not starting, but he, when he gets in there, he's going to be really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm here. It's like, no. Um, I
0: remember um, I was at a high school game one time and somebody kept asking me, Oh, what's the score? Like uh, what just happened? I didn't see it. And I'm like, I have no idea. My camera is literally ISO'd on this one offensive lineman the yes. entire time. I can tell you how he is blocking. Would you like to know?
1: <laughs> and they don't—they don't kind of get that. But it's funny when you mentioned the AAU games. All these, like, all these people are yeah. here for that one dude. And like, there's probably some parents are like, "Hey, how did you think they're fast?" Like, I don't know. I'm looking at this guy. I'm only looking at him.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's it's true for us and it's true for them. And we do it because they do it. We know who they're focused on because we know and. Then we focus on that when we're, you know, (laughs) filming stuff or watching stuff. And it's a never-ending cycle. And I I imagine it does lead to a pretty significant fail rate where guys just go overlooked, you know, whatever. They're late bloomers as juniors or whatever in basketball or football. And, oh, well, sorry. I mean, it almost happened to Russell Westbrook. Um, I mean, he almost had to go to – I forget who the backup option was. It was some, like, just – I think it was, like, a random Midwestern school. Like, just some random, like – might have been, I don't. It was some random D one school, but uh, and it took like some real recruiting to get a bit wait around for UCLA come the April signing period his senior year. So weird stuff happens. All right, we got a few more questions that we should probably knock out.
1: Okay.
0: All right, uh, day our man, uh, had a little follow up to our thing from yesterday. He said. Well you're two steps or thing from last week. Well, you're two steps ahead of me. My plan was to trick you into gossiping at length about your own schools, mission accomplished, and then demand in the next email that in the interest of fairness you keep it going with a series interviewing the two four seven contributors. Imagine my surprise when you announced this brilliant idea to fill off season dead air on your own. I thought the depth you went into with both schools was just perfect, and I hope it continues with all your guests. I think people who are close to something as you boys are with USC and UCLA tend to forget that what's obvious and not worth discussing for you is novel and unique to everybody else. My follow-up about the LA programs: uh, both of you indicated that, despite having every institutional advantage imaginable, for long stretches of the recent past, these schools held uh, held themselves back in modernizing their programs. Even if fingers crossed, those days are over. What do you think contributed to that? The typical sins of complacency, pride, greed, and sloth, or was there some political heavyweight holding things back? I can start if you want. Sure, we'll go ahead. To think about it. Yeah. Um I think uh so those sense of complacency, I would say pride and sloth uh were the main issues at UCLA since basically uh John Wooden retired in nineteen seventy five. Um I think so here's my timeline, my people's history of UCLA. Uh I think UCLA got very lucky in hiring a super elite basketball coach. Um, at a time when UCLA was still forming an identity. Uh, I think that was, what, 1949, 48, when Wooden was hired. Um, And they hired this guy who was, you know, a relative unknown, but people kind of saw that he was going to be a pretty good coach, and then he turned into a super elite guy. And that established UCLA's athletic brand. I think UCLA would have ended up probably a pretty good athletic school regardless, because LA is a great place to recruit to, as I'm sure my co-host knows. Um, but wouldn't put UCLA on the map as the elite athletic institution on the West Coast for a time, um, in terms of all the different sports, the gamut of everything, um, it, it's, obviously basketball became a big national thing, um, in, in some part due to those UCLA teams. Um, but after that happened, uh, UCLA, I think be behaved institutionally as if, um, that happened because they were UCLA, not because it was just kind of a happy accident that they ended up hiring this guy. And so they tried to go on the cheap and uh, tried to treat UCLA as if it's the job that everybody should want. And so they don't have to pay market price for coaches and they don't have to, you know, do these, you know, crazy due diligence things to get coaches like, you know, actually evaluating the coaching landscape when they're hiring. And instead, oh, we can just hire internally because we're UCLA, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just be good because we'll be good. And I I think it was just this kind of lazy, um, prideful thinking, um, that led UCLA to make just a lot of, you know, mediocre to bad basketball hires, um, a lot of mediocre to bad football hires, um, to maintain as like their standard for excellence, Terry Donahue, who I think over the course of his career averaged like 7.6 wins a season. Um, and then to hire first his subordinate, uh, offensive coordinator Bob Toledo, and then um, Carl Durrell, one of his former players, and then Rick Neuheisel, one of his former players. Um, I think there was this idea that you know coaches needed to be part of the UCLA family to be hired there. And I think it was just a lot of lazy, incestuous thinking going on there. I think the institution as a whole just – needed a change up. Um, I think they got it a little bit with Jim Mora. Um, I think they've gotten on a little bit with some changes in the athletic department, um, in terms of how they do their fundraising in terms of just, you know, uh, the buy-in from different factors internally, um, from the booster group. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think Mora has a lot to do with it. And now the proof that they're really turning over a new leaf is hiring Chip Kelly, um, and whether that works out or not, I think, you know, institutionally, it's – I don't think UCLA has ever been as obviously committed to being good on the football field as they are by hiring Chip Kelly. Whether it turns out well or not, um, I think the the buy-in is finally there.
1: Great stuff. And I think there's some similar aspects of, like, the prideful stuff and the sort of sitting on your laurels at, at USC as well. I mean, for, for basketball, they just always seem to be a snake uh, – bitten program for whatever reason i think when usc basketball was at its best it was during a time when only one team from a conference could make the 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 ncaa tournament so you happen to be in like this all-time dynasty right next to you and uh i think there there was one team that usc that lost like 24 and 2 but didn't make the ncaa tournament because they lost to ucla or something so and then every you know every you know five eight years they'll make a little run and something weird goes on i think when i was in school they had uh uh who was baby jordan why am i blanking on his name um son of a okay well anyway uh but they had a really good team and like george georgia tech hit a like a you know a, a jump shot at the end like a long jump shot like you know with point something seconds left and and beat usc um there's always just to be seen stuff like that. This was a year where everyone thought USC was going to be great. And then the M- the FBI stuff that Jason Shearer's mentioned, it happens. It kind of derails them. They just never seem to be able to get over. I don't know. There's always something seems to go wrong. Whenever you think that they're going to be uh Harold Miner was his name, man. I couldn't, Harold I, Miner. I can't yeah, believe I, I blanked on that. Um So that's on the basketball side. I think they've tried. It just seems to be really not in the cards. And, I think they've been able to build like some popularity, you know, from the football team, the football teams had a long tradition. So there's teams that had great traditions, like in the thirties, I mean, you've seen, you know, like Yale or, well, you know, these, a lot of these schools, they don't, you know, play real football anymore. It's rare when you have a school that can win in, you know, those kind of decades and sixties and seventies or whatever. And then, you know, they go for a little bit of a break and, um, you know, later on USC started winning Heisman. So you got championships, you got Heisman's. Um, and they didn't really have the the recent relevance until Pete Carroll came along. Like they were, you know, they'd go to Rose Bowl every once in a while or whatever, but it just wasn't the same sort of thing. Pete Carroll changed that. And like just like Dave said with uh John Wooden, I mean I think kind of lucked into that one. Uh really not their first choice. But, you know, looking back, he was a guy that was a you know great NFL mind. Uh Really had, uh, the energy to be a college coach and this kind of rah-rah guy who maybe didn't go all that well in the NFL, but it was seemed to be, his game seemed to be suited perfectly for college football. And he didn't have to do it in a way like a, like a Nick Saban where it's just a scowl all the time and everything's business. Now, Pete Carroll, I mean, he can be a, a real jerk. I mean, he'll, I mean, he, it's not like he's a pushover. He's a really competitive guy, but he'll, he'll do everything in a more, gregarious way and it just seemed to fit in los angeles so that kind of worked um and you know you can build some success off that so you get more all americans more heismans championships you kind of add to that legacy and you got there's you know it just goes in cycles and it goes up and down i think since then too you try to hire in sort of a same lazy way and sometimes it works out but a lot of times it doesn't and i think uh there is some of that pride there where okay now you've, you've you built yourself back up to the, you know, near the top of the mountain. Go out and make that big hire. Do what UCLA did and hire a Chip Kelly. And we just haven't seen USC do that. And I think I talked about this last week. But some of it has to do with you have a coach like that. They end up running a lot of what's going on. Uh, I mean, do you know who the president of Alabama is or the athletic director? It doesn't matter because whatever Nick Saban says goes. Um, you get a Pete Carroll, you get a guy like that. They're running things and sometimes the administration doesn't want someone like that. They'd like to win, but we don't really want someone wielding all that kind of power too. So I think a lot of that's kind of internal where maybe that's not prideful. Maybe that's just being selfish and they would rather keep their little fiefdoms moving as a, you know, the same way as opposed to bringing someone that was going to shake everything up. But there's certainly a lot of built in advantages and even, you know, if you ask David Woods where Clay Helton would be ranked as far as Pac twelve coaches go, he's probably not gonna put him very high. But he won a freaking Rose Bowl and he won the Pac twelve last year. So just being like a competent coach at USC, I think can get you pretty far because of all those built in advantages that you had talked about.
0: I think the Clay Helton, Jake Browning combo would be the top eightiest um <laughs> combination in the Pac twelve. Um <laughs> I think he's about 8th best, and that's, that's I think, a testament to the built-in advantages that USC, that the 8th best coach in the league, can uh, win the conference with relative ease. Um, all right, we've got one final question from Anthony. Okay. Um, hi, Ryan and Dave. What is more surprising? UCLA has only one basketball national championship since 1975, or the last Pac-12 national championship in basketball was Arizona in
1: 1997. Huh. I mean, I don't know. Do you have a thought on this? So I what, mean, UCLA won in 95, right? I,
0: I would say uh, surprising isn't the word because I knew both of those, so it's not surprising to me. Um, I would say the uh, which is the more distressing or which is the more like of an issue. Um, I mean, probably the lack of a Pac-12 national championship. I mean, UCLA has made so many bad coaching hires since 1975 that it's like okay that makes sense um but the lack of a pac-12 national championship i think speaks to the kind of the way the league is just in both football and basketball but kind of you know uh, rendered a little bit secondary to the national conversation in a lot of ways
1: well i'd say so ucla won in 95 right ty Edney and all that stuff and Um, and then Arizona in 97. So that was a pretty good run for the PAC 12. And that was like, I think Arizona was the first team to ever beat like three number one seeds when they won. So that's a, that's a pretty amazing run, but yeah, we just haven't seen them really even be all that competitive. You would see like, you know, two big 10 teams making the final four and stuff. And it just wasn't the same. Like UCLA had a few final fours there, but they just didn't seem to be, they were just kind of like to get there. It wasn't like. It didn't seem like a team that was built to win.
0: I mean, they they lost by double. They lost by double digits in each of those Final Fours um, under Ben Holland. So they lost twice to Florida by double digits, and then once to Memphis.
1: Yeah, I I think it's. I mean, it's it's disturbing that they really have it, and it's not. I mean, I would say, yeah, winning is great, but just it. They they don't really seem to have teams that look like okay. This is a team that's going to make a run and uh, go a long way. The, the the good teams seem to get upset pretty early <laughs> a lot of times in the tournament. I don't know what it is, but that's, it should be better. I think Pac-12 basketball, basketball should be better. And I, I mean, like we said, I don't watch as much of it anymore. I watch some, but just, it's not been the same to me. And maybe that's part of it. I definitely, during those times, like the, the in the nineties, I watched a, a hell of a lot more college basketball than I do now. But um I don't know. It's hard for me to put my finger on exactly what it is, but it's, It's, you know, it's a problem. I don't know why, you know, what Arizona went up and lost to Washington the other day. Um, you know, ASU is like the talk of the, the conference in the, you know, in, uh, out of conference schedule. And now they're, they, you know, they're under 500 in conference. It's just weird. It just, something doesn't seem to click, Dave. And it's not, you don't have like this Duke or North Carolina, like they just make these runs and they're all powerful, Kentucky, whatever. It just doesn't seem we've had that in the Pac 12 for many, many years.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's all true. Um, I think UCLA had a nice run under Howland. Um, those three Final Four teams, I, I, uh, I that's mean, a great I, run. I, could, I mean, that I is could, a great I run. I could record. I could record for seven hours about the 2018 team and why um, Ben Howland was the reason they lost to Memphis. But I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to subject all of our listeners to that. Um, but um, Aside from that run, I mean, Arizona has had some good stretches, but I think the fundamental issue is a lack of elite coaching in the league. I mean, I would say right now, Arizona has a pretty good coach in Sean Miller, but I think he's, I I don't know if I would call him super elite. I think he's a really good recruiter, and I think he's a fine-to-good in-game coach, but I don't know that he's, I don't know that he's got what it takes um, to get Arizona back to being a, a legit national championship team. Um, I, I, I know Steve Alford does not at UC, at UCLA, um, at USC. I don't think Andy Enfield's that guy. I mean, I would say the best, like pure coaches in the league are probably what Dana Altman at Oregon, um, and, um, maybe Larry Krzykowiak at, at Utah, um, Utah's never going to get the talent to do it. And at Oregon, maybe Dana Altman gets it, um, gets the right combo. I think last year he had close to it, but I don't know. It's just, I, I think the, when UCLA is relatively down as it has been for the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, and when Arizona is, you know, pretty good, but I think the the league needs two kind of polls that are both um, in that elite conversation and UCLA has just been out of it too much um, when UCLA isn't, it's like when USC is not really great at football, the league's not doing a whole lot. When UCLA or when USC, I think I said, but um, when UCLA is not great at basketball, the league also doesn't do a whole lot.
1: Yeah, man, I can't believe we talked that much about basketball.
0: I know we got to stop. We got to stop right now. <laughs>
1: um, what is it? So that's eleven national championships for UCLA, right? Mm-hmm. Eleven, yeah. Because yeah. I remember ten in
0: ten and twelve years, and then one in forty-two. 43 going to
1: be this year yeah i remember when i my first engineering job uh i was working at Hughes aircraft company in el segundo and one of the guys in our like we had like cubes and there one of them was a big ucla fan so he had the i remember in 95 he had it hanging down there and he would talk about banner 12 all the time like it was this next thing like banner 12 yeah. was like big talk and stuff and um i, I mean Howland had the shots you know you go to three final fours you at least got a shot so that that was a pretty good run, but just it seemed like those are kind of few and far between for the Pac-12 for some reason. Agreed. All right. Well, hey, good stuff. We got well, we got hour forty five ish, so that's not yeah, too bad. that'll
0: that'll uh, hopefully the people who pay us the big bucks for this yeah. feel satisfied now.
1: Yeah, get your money's worth. Uh, where, where should they send checks? By the way, should we, <laughs> we we need Venmo or something. <laughs> send us a few bitcoins. I don't know, whatever you want. Um,
0: yeah, a few, a few. They're like. They're worth nothing these days. Only like six, $7,000 a piece.
1: Is it really that, is it that high? Is that stuff?
0: Yeah. That fake money is still kicking ass.
1: There was one that was like totally fake that just went – it was like a vegan like cryptocurrency or something. So it like appealed to people like that and uh, it just went – just went away so it was, it was like that's what i would worry about the cryptocurrencies it was just like oh it's just gone it's like some guy it's someone somebody somebody's like computer it's like on a drive somewhere he just erases it and that's all gone <laughs> i don't know much about this stuff but okay yeah,
0: well. yeah it's something with blockchain and you have a big computer that solves math problems or something and i don't know you make money by. yeah uh, it's fake money it's yeah. fake money it should be worthless. <laughs> I, I I heard this story today about somebody who um, paid for Bitcoin when it was at nineteen thousand with uh, her twenty thousand dollar limit credit card, maxed it out basically to buy it, and now it's down to six thousand. And it's like, how many people are spending fake money credit to to buy fake money? <laughs> like, it's just what what are we doing? Uh, that not person, to go all you know nineteen sixties philosopher on everybody, but my God, everybody—that's
1: bad. It's, You're going to find out my- what nineteen percent you know interest. <laughs> <Yeah. is. laughs> it's gonna that's gonna just, sting. Oh, it's baffling. You know what? It's funny, and we're way we're way off topic. But I was looking back at my bookshelf before we did the show. There's a book by David uh, Chilton called The Wealthy Barber. Everybody's uh-huh. common sense guide to becoming financially independent. So if you're thinking about buying Bitcoin on a credit card, is it 19,000? Go read this. Go read the wealthy barber. I recommend it. Um, and it will help you, I think. Have you read this one, Dave, or,
0: or just steal it if you don't have the money to buy the book. <laughs> Use your, <laughs> well, there's uh, the old, I think it's the Abby Hoffman, um, like anarchist guide from the sixties. That's, it's literally called steal this book and you you're just supposed to steal it and it's all like basically how do you live without money and it's just all the things you can steal and beg for that's a book
1: that's a book everybody should read i need to check that one out that's like survival skills i like that
0: never read it i'm sure it's full of a lot of really relevant information from 60 years ago
1: (laughs) They need an updated version. They need a 2018 Yeah, they need to
0: update that. Steal this book, volume two. Because you could do
1: so much with just, you know, with your phone or whatever. Like, you can, you know, you don't have to physically steal stuff. You can electronically steal stuff. So, I, you know, if you can hack into things or whatever, get credit, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're- That
0: sounds hard. On second thought, let's just buy some fake stuff. Let's buy some fake money.
1: (laughs) I love the credit card. Oh, my God. So bad. So bad. All right. Well, I guess we should wrap it up. Um, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. We are the podcast of champions. For some reason, you listen to our show, and we do appreciate it. Whatever whatever reason compelled you to turn this on and listen, we hope we haven't uh, <laughs> changed your mind about doing it in the future. We will do a signing day show next week uh so post signing day kind of analysis with one of the analysts from twenty four seven sports and then we'll get back to our in-depth analysis of all the programs in pairs. So like David said, probably the mountain schools uh in two weeks. So if you have any questions about Utah or Colorado or about signing day, send those in uh podcast at gmail.com or tweet us at Twelve Podcast, and we'd love to answer those on the show. So signing up for Dave and Ryan Thanks so much for tuning in and we will talk to you next time.